Uh, we've been looking at uh, a series called Precious Gifts, and this will be the last week for this, and this is actually the last Sunday school of the year. So um, we're going to be finishing up today, and uh, we've talked about a variety of things. Well, actually, we haven't. We've talked about two things, not a variety. How about a couple of things? And uh, Scripture tells us that there's precious gifts that you and I have in our life. And uh, the first week, we talked about the blood, and we talked about why the blood is precious in our life. We mentioned that it redeems, that the blood forgives, that it cleanses our conscience, that it can heal, that we are made near by the blood of Jesus, that it gives us access to God into the throne room of God, that it sanctifies us, and that it ultimately conquers. And uh, I'm thankful that I have the blood of Jesus in my life. I want to treasure it as a precious gift. <clears throat> and we talked about the promises of God last week, which Peter told us and all of these come from Peter himself, that the blood is precious, that the promises of God are precious, and we talked about why they are precious as well. They're precious because of the source, because they are divine, and because they are from God, we understand that God cannot lie. So when he says something, it has to come to pass. We understand that he is unchangeable, and because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, his purpose and his will doesn't change. So even though uh, our circumstances may have changed. His purpose and will has not changed. And then we talked that he has to do it. He has to fulfill his promises because of his reputation. That he is seeking the glory. That whereas you and I cannot uh, do things for our own renown, for our own reputation, that's what God does. And because of his reputation, because he wants the glory, he has to fulfill. We also talked about that inherent in the divine promises is divine power. If God tells you that he's going to do something, it's not just words, but because it's from God, we understand that there's a divine power that is backing that up, that he can do the impossible, no matter how impossible it may seem to you and I. And then we ended talking about how we have the encouragement of the Holy Ghost, that that is the greatest promise that you and I were ever given and have received in our life. And it has continued for 2,000 years. And if God said it, all the way back prophesying of it when he was on this earth and it's still happening today, then you and I can rest assured because of the Holy Ghost within us that God can and God will fulfill his promises. And so when we're discouraged, the best thing to encourage us is the Holy Ghost. Now we read in, in uh, Psalms, we, we know that David encouraged himself in the Lord. Now we understand that in the Old Testament, God moved on people, the Spirit of God moved on people, it moved uh, through people, it moved by people, but it did not dwell in people. So when David said he encouraged himself in the Lord, he did it without the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. So he just, I mean, it wasn't the power of positive thinking, but he did it without the power of the Holy Ghost. How much more should I be able to encourage myself because I have the Holy Ghost, because I have the power of God living and dwelling in me? And so we have those precious gifts, the blood and his promises. And this week, is the last of the precious gifts, and this one is a little bit different, but it's no less important. It's counted in with these three precious gifts. We find the last one in Peter as well, in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 7. And it says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than that of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And the last precious gift that we will look at this morning that you and I have or have the uh, ability to possess is the precious gift of the trial 
of your faith. Now this one's a lot different than the blood and the promises because of a few words involved there. It's far easier to be thankful for the blood of God in my life, the blood of Jesus in my life. It's far easier to be thankful uh, and rejoice about what it does. And here's the number one reason why I think it's not mine. (laughs) It's not my blood. It's a whole lot easier to rejoice over the blood that he shed rather than my blood being shed. Because when my blood's being shed, it hurts, usually. (laughs) It's far easier to rejoice in the promises of God because with the promises of God, despite the fact that we sometimes have to wait for them and they don't always happen how and when we think, yet with the promises of God, there is that hope, there is that expectation that comes with those promises. But the trial of my faith involves two words that don't really seem to equate, at least in my mind, maybe they do in yours, with a precious gift. And the two words are trial and my. <laughs> my trial. When I think of precious gifts, I don't think of my trial. Maybe you do. Uh, maybe we like to have it autocorrect to trail, my trail, instead of my trial. I'm fine with my trail, but I don't really like my trial. I don't think of some wonderful gift being talked about. When I think about a trial, I think about hard times. I think about struggles. I think about desperation. I think about frantic, searching prayer. God, where are you? Have you left me? What's going on? And above all, when I think of trials, it makes me think of something that I don't want. <laughs> I don't know about you. Maybe you just bring on the trials. I don't know. Bring on the cold. Actually, it's a little warm up here, I think, but I'm going to turn some air on. But Peter calls the trying of my faith as something that's counted as much more precious, something that we should hold close and treasure as much as the blood and as much as the promises. The trial of my faith is much more precious. This one is a little bit more difficult to grasp. But I want us to understand that it's no less important in our lives. And there's a few things that I think we need to look at to understand this precious gift and what it means. And we start in Hebrews chapter 11 with the most basic scriptural description of what faith is. I'm sure many of you could quote this, Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is described in this verse as a substance. The substance, or that word means the substructure, the foundation, the assurance, or the confidence. So we find that everything that we hope for, everything that we hope for, has at its base, as its foundation, our faith. If our faith is weak, it begins to shake everything that's on top of it. All right, does that make sense? So just like a foundation, if the foundation of a house or a building begins to have cracks or it begins to to shift slightly, it affects everything that's on top. The foundation shifts, and you you may not know the foundation has shifted, but you may see a crack in the drywall appear in your ceiling or in a wall, and you think, well, where did that come from? Because something fundamental, something at the base has shifted. And it tells, the, the, the writer of Hebrews tells us that this base in our spiritual life is faith. My hope of heaven is founded upon faith. 
because it's a hope. I hope in heaven. It has not come to pass, so it's hope. So it is grounded upon my faith. The promises of God are founded and grounded in my faith. Paul goes on even further. (laughs) He states that my faith is the evidence of things that I don't see. That means if I want evidence, that's a great new word I just invented. (laughs) I was going to say evidence of heaven, but we'll just call it evidence. You know what? I just, if I would just put words together like that, I could preach and teach shorter. I'm going to work on that. I'll just hand out a dictionary and we can talk about evidence and all that stuff. Magnifical evidence. But that means if I, if I want evidence that heaven is real, I need to look at my faith because that is the substance of things hoped for, my faith. Now, I can base my faith on a number of things, upon the promises of God. I can base it upon the fact that that there's a new birth experience, but it ultimately comes down to my faith. If I want proof that that he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, I have to look at my faith to see if if there's really proof of that. My faith is the grounding, the basis of the unseen. It is the proof of the unseen. So if there's something that I'm believing in my life that is unseen, my faith should be the proof of it. It tells us that evidence, that's proof, that by which a thing is proven or tested, a conviction that we have. My faith is the evidence, the proof of things unseen. It adds to the simple idea of assurance. (coughs) A suggestion of influences operating to produce conviction which carry the force of demonstration. This word evidence often signifies a process or proof or demonstration. Now this is important because this word evidence and our faith being connected. Because this is where we're heading this morning. This is extremely important. So keep that in mind. Evidence, uh, evidence, remember that. Evidence and, and, and a, a proof, a demonstration. Paul also tells us how to increase our faith or how to build our faith. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. To build my faith, I need the word of God to be put inside of me. Now obviously, this doesn't mean just by the actual hearing of my physical ears. So the only way that I can get faith is if someone actually speaks to me, but the word of God can speak to me, even though I I could be reading it, Or, or it can come in a variety of ways, but I have to understand That to build my faith, I must have the Word of God inside of me. Now, this is very important, okay? Because sometimes we like to increase our faith other ways. We like to increase our faith, uh, and and there's there's nothing wrong with this because it can be a component of it. But if I, if I, well, anyway, I'm going to be careful. If I live my life just listening to stories of miracles of other people's faith, That's not necessarily guaranteed to increase my faith. That can be a component of it, but I've got to have the Word of God in my life. Just because I listen to miracle stories but never read the Word of God or never hear preaching doesn't mean my faith's going to be increased. Now, all of that working together is fine, but I have to understand. Now, I have to also understand that just because the Word of God is being heard in my life does not mean that I have great faith. Because that simple fact means if I simply come to church every time the doors are open and just sit there and the words go into my ears, that means I'll have great faith. 
No, there has to be something combined with that. It's not enough just to hear the words. There has to be something else happening. The word of God also is not evidence of my faith. So just because I've heard the word, the word of God is not evidence of my faith. I can't say, well, I believe in God and here's the evidence. The word of God cannot be the evidence. There has to be something inside of me that is the evidence. James brings out something very interesting, some some interesting things in his book, and he's very much concerned throughout his book, and he covers this in a variety of ways, with the end result, the product of things in our lives. He is very concerned about the out, that the outcome, that the fruit matches the source or what we say we have. <clears throat> he makes statements like, how can, a, how can fresh water bring forth bitter water? Or a fresh source bring forth bitter? How can a, a fig tree bring forth olives? It's impossible for a source and the fruit to be different. And he puts this into our, 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 uh, into our walk with God. And he mentions this in regards to faith itself. He says in James chapter 2 and verse 18, he says, Yay, a man may say. So anyone can say, Yay. He says, Thou hast faith, and I have works. So you've got faith, I've got works. And he tells, he's saying this, Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Now he's speaking here about actual physical acts of telling somebody, Hey, I know you're really cold, go have a great day. And I don't give them a coat or give them a sweater or something to warm them up. Or, hey, I know you're really hungry, you know what? Just believe in the Lord while I eat my chicken sandwich. He's saying faith and works. I can believe all day that person may be fed, but if I have the ability to help that person, I should do that. But he says here, show me thy faith without thy works. And this is the key phrase. You say you have faith... I say, take it beyond words and show me. So you believe that God can bring you through every trial. You believe that. Show me. Is what he says. How do I show that? I have to come through a trial. Okay, this is all tied in with why my, the trial of my faith is so precious. So he's saying, we've got, and there's a lot of things in our lives that we believe, and James says that's fine to believe them, but where is the fruit? What does it look like? Show me your faith. Faith is not something that's just a belief that's inward, but it should demonstrate itself in our lives. There should be tangible things in our life that we can say, I believe, and this is why, or here's evidence of it. Just like it's not enough to say, I've got the Holy Ghost. You can say that all, that all day long, but the scripture tells us there is evidence of the Holy Ghost. There's proof of the Holy Ghost. It's speaking in another language. Now, does speaking in another language mean you have the Holy Ghost? No, because then everyone would have the Holy Ghost because everyone speaks another language to somebody, right? But it's the combination of the Spirit of the Lord moving in and then evidence of speaking in a tongue that you did not learn. So it's, it, there's a combination there that there's a proof. So it's not just that you have to rely on some inward belief that God came into my life someday. No, you can speak in tongues whenever you want, which is a physical proof that something happened to you. That's why it's important to speak in tongues, because you know what? It's good to build my faith, and when I speak in tongues, it builds my faith, because that's evidence that God is actually living inside of me. He tells them that saying you have faith 
really, when it comes down to it, if there's no proof, how do you prove it? I can tell you all kinds of stuff. How, how many of you ever, uh, there was a few years ago, how many of you ever heard of Shark Week? What was that on? History or what? Discovery Channel. And they, they played that thing, what was it, the, the Megalodon? Was that it? They had this, they had this documentary about Megalodon, which is some uh, shark that lives deep down in the waters, and no one's really, and it's all a lie. It's all a lie. There is no shark like that. <laughs> that sounds like something I would do. <laughs> the Discovery Channel hires me, and I just put shows on there that are lies. <laughs> but it came down to there's no proof of it. There's no proof. You can say whatever you want, but if there's no proof, I mean, we have an entire judicial system that's built upon what? Evidence. Well, I think they did it. Okay, 20 years. No, there has to be evidence presented. In the same way, and, and, and we want evidence in every area of our life. We want it proved here. We, we call, we, we, you know, I paid that bill. I, I, want, I want my receipts in writing so I can prove that I did this. We want all the proof. But then when it comes to our walk with God, we just go on feeling. And, and, and now there has to be proof in our Christian walk with God as well. And that's what James is saying. One person said, faith is like a docked boat. It may look great in the dry dock, painted and magnificent. But the test of whether it's really a vessel fit for use, it's when it's put to the water and tested. James goes to far to, as far to say about uh, faith and fruit and, and, and a variety of things. If you say it but can't prove it, is it really real? If a tree falls in the woods and nobody's around, does it make a noise? He says, if you say you have faith, but there's no evidence, do you really have faith? Having faith is demonstrating or proving or evidencing that you have faith. How do you prove that you have faith and it's not just something you say? How do you prove that you really believe He will never leave you or forsake you? How do you really prove that you believe that He is a provider? How do you prove that he, you believe that He is returning someday? How do you prove that you believe He's a strong tower, that He is with you, even in the valley of the shadow of death? Let me tell you how you prove it. By the precious gift of the trial of your faith. The testing of your faith. Is it faith if it dissolves in the fire of trial? If gold dissolves in the fire, is it really gold? You see, the trial of our faith proves to ourself that what we have is real. It talks about faith being tried in the fire, which is uh, referring to the refiner's fire of, of where they would put gold and silver through the fire and they would burn off all the excess and be left with what was pure. And if it all burned up, there was nothing real in there. So the trial of our faith, it allows us to see what's really real in our life. The trial of my faith is precious because when my faith is tried and I come through it, and here's one thing, is I realize that there is something solid to stand on. The trial of my faith is precious because it helps me realize what I really have to stand on. What is really true and what is real. Psalms chapter 69, verses 1 and 2, David says, Save me, O God, for the waters are coming in unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me. 
That describes life many times. Feel like we're sinking. Feel like we're in deep mire. There's no place to stand. We're in deep waters and it's overflowing me. But what I, I, I know to be true is that in what uh, uh, the, the writers have told us, faith is the evidence of things not seen, that there's, there's something sure, there's something tried there, is that when I come through a testing or trial, that I realize that when I'm in those times and I feel like David, that he's describing here, when I feel like I'm sinking and circumstances begin to engulf me, when I feel like there's nothing to stand on, I realize that my tried and tested faith is my foundation. That when I've had my faith tried, suddenly when I get in situations, I don't have to panic when I get that sinking feeling. That I don't have to feel like I'm being overwhelmed because my faith has been tried and it upholds me when I face those rough times again. The trial of my faith is precious because once I've come through a trial, I realize where my foundation is. I realize where my, my, the solid in my life is in the middle of everything else. Jesus stated it this way in Matthew chapter 7. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth... Is anyone getting warmer? Anyone? It's warmer. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Now in this story we know that Jesus Christ is the rock and we know that we can build on nothing less than Jesus Christ. But building on the rock doesn't work. You see there's something that I have to understand when I build I have to dig a foundation. I have to not just build on the rock I have to dig into the rock. It wouldn't be enough for me just to build upon something If you built your house upon a rock, you know what? The winds and waves and and the storm could knock it over. But what we understand about building the house upon the rock is inside of that is that I must dig into the rock. That I have to have the foundation and that is my faith. My faith is digging into the rock which we know to be Jesus Christ. How how am I going to know that my house will stand? We can say it will stand. I can believe it will stand. (laughs) How many of you have ever done something and you knew it would work? (laughs) And you'd almost convinced your wife that it would work? (laughs) And then you tried to use it? (laughs) Yeah. You can believe it'll work all you want. And, And the worst part is when it should work. Like you did everything right and it should work. And you can't figure out why it won't work. But what it comes down to is, it doesn't matter if it should or shouldn't work, or if you rigged it up some way, or you did it by the book. Here's the simple fact of the matter. It doesn't work. And that's all your wife cares about, (laughs) is that it doesn't work. Not my wife. She's very compassionate. She just expects it not to work from the start. But the same way with my house, when, when, when I build my house and when the storms come, well before the storms come, when I build my house and I'm standing there looking at my life and I think, yeah, I've built it the right way. I can believe I've built it the right way. I can believe I've done the right things in my life. I can believe that I have faith and, and, and I, can, 
I can say, well, I followed the plan exactly. I, I did everything I was supposed to do. But the only thing that will really prove it is the storm. I do not know that my house will stand the test of the storm until the storm comes. And I can believe it all day long, but the trial of my faith is precious because it takes my faith and gives me fact to stand upon. Before, I just believed that my house would stand, but after the storm came, I know that my house can stand. That's something important. Because you know what? When the next storm comes, and we know it will, I can have confidence, peace, and rest assured that when the storm comes, my house can weather the storm because I've built it in the rock. It's important for us to understand that it's not just on the rock, but my faith must dig into the rock. And it's, it's not just God, and it's not just my faith, but it's when I place my faith in Him. It's important for us to understand, too, that Peter, he's talking about when I'm tried, when I'm tested. And it can be confusing about what a trial is in the context that we're talking about. We're talking about a test from God that will prove what you say you have. It's important for us to understand that there's a difference between a trial and a testing and a temptation. James chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Now this is a confusing passage because the words used are different. But it, really that should read, Blessed is the man that endureth a trial or a test from God. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. Verse 13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, Neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. James tells us the difference between temptation and a testing or trial. The test and trial from God has a crown of life at the end. Temptation has as its end death. If one of the choices, here's a simple test. If one of the choices in your life, in the trial that you can't figure out, is this a trial or temptation? If one of the choices in your life leads to sin and death, that's a temptation, not a trial. Because God does not tempt man. He doesn't place the option of sin in front of us. That's important to understand. God does not give us the choice between him and sin, right and wrong. He gives us moral choices that we have to make. He gives us well, should I work this Sunday or should I go to church? Now, if I don't go to church one Sunday, is that a sin? Nope. Should I take an axe to this person <laughs> or should I not? That might be temptation right there. God does not put the choice of sin in front of us. So we have to understand that fact. Now, the, the difficult part comes in is because sometimes life throws things at us. And we, we're not sure if it's life or it's God testing us. So you know what? I hold fast to my faith through it all. Is God testing me with sickness or is it just life? That one's a little bit more difficult to answer. But you know what? I determine in my life that you know what? No matter where it comes from, I'm going to be faithful and true to God throughout it all. It's important for us to understand too that the trial of my faith is not just precious because it gives me something solid to stand on. But the trial of my faith is precious because Scripture tells me that it's producing and shaping something in me. Understand that God does not just send us trials because He is sadistic. 
If I believe that he's a faithful and true and just God, I can't believe that he sends things my way just because he gets joy out of my pain. There's a point to it. God is trying to produce something in you and I. James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Paul says in Romans 5, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Both Paul and James tell us that tribulations or trials work patience. That is, that there is a point, there is a purpose, that there is a finish in mind when God sends a trial or test my way. The word used in James for perfect work is the word telos, and it means a complete or finished work, and you find it throughout Scripture. That God is not random, and we know that, but many times in our testings and trials, we forget that God still has a purpose, that God still has a plan. That trials are a process that, as Paul and James both say, if we can endure, that's what patience is, if we can persevere, if we can endure are part of God's plan of producing a perfect finished end in us. We know that the ultimate end is heaven, that God wants to see every person in heaven. And so we know that he is trying to produce something in us that will help us make it to heaven. And you know what? Sometimes I need that help. This is the start of the book. It says, I, James, am a slave of God and the master Jesus. And I didn't have to read this first verse, but I wanted to because I think it's funny. I, James, am a slave of God and the master of Jesus, writing to the 12 tribes scattered to kingdom come. Colon, hello. That's what the message reads that verse. To all those who are scattered, the kingdom come. Hello. He says, Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. Wow. That's not how I think. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open. Evidence begins to show itself from what you say you believe when pressure comes. And shows its true colors. Here it is. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature and well developed, not deficient in any way. You see, my trials have a telos, an end product, a purpose. The problem is, is when I begin to place my own telos, my own ideas in the place of God. The message says, don't try to get out of anything prematurely. We pray for deliverance from a lot of things that may actually be trying to form us. Nobody likes to go through a trial. And you know what I would like for God to do? I would like for God to deliver me from my trial. Understand though, if he delivers me from my trial, I can't be shaped and molded the way he wants me to. That's very important. God, make me the person you want me to be. God, deliver me now. Well, what do you want? Could it be that we've 
Sometimes in our life we seem to go through the same things again and again. Could it be that we've never really learned the lesson that God is trying to teach us? Every time he tries to mold us and shape us, we simply say, Lord, deliver me from this. I can't deal with it. God has a perfect work he's trying to do in you. But you and I see deliverance as a perfect work. Somehow we've replaced suffering with being something good and we've replaced it with deliverance, which means deliverance is always good. Deliverance is not always good necessarily. There's an interesting thing. I watched this deal about uh, the seals, uh, this guy talking about the seals, and there was something interesting he said. I can't remember where I shared this. I may have shared it in a Sunday school, so maybe you've heard it. But he said the seals have a 40% rule. He said, and this is a rule, when you think you're at your end, you're usually only at 40% done. When you're doing anything, you're like, man, I can't go on. He said, really, you're at 40%. That's kind of crazy. He said, they, they understand that you're more than half done, but you still have 40% left. How many of you have been doing something? You're like, man, I can't do no more, and you, you did more. Uh, you know, a lot of times with physical things, you, you know, you go out running. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sometimes you think about running, and you think, I can't think about it anymore, and then you think about it more. See, you can think about more. <laughs> But that's just the natural, that's just the seals. You think you're done and you still have 40% left. Never mind that it's something spiritual, never mind you've got the Holy Ghost. You think, I can't endure it anymore. You know what, maybe we can and maybe we'll become more of the person that God wants us to be. The apostles realized uh, in the early church that God was trying to produce a church and their faith made them endure through trials and because they endured through trials, not because of the miracles, Let me tell you this, it's not because of the miracles, it's not because they were more powerful preachers, but because they endured through the trials, they produced a church. That church was not birthed out of miracles. It was not birthed out of all kinds of stuff that we lift up today. It was birthed out of enduring trials. You read and you study revivals throughout history, they are all birthed out of enduring trials and awful times. And when they endured, something was birthed, something happened because they endured. And we like to take all the extra stuff that came with the revival and say, well, we want that. Well, you can't get that unless you endure. You can't get the finished product. You can't get the telos, the complete work without patience and endurance. Let me tell you, your end results, whether it's your personal life, whether it's a church, are linked with your suffering and your trials. If you aren't willing to suffer or go through the trials and testings that God sends your way, you're not going to get the end results that you want. A bar of iron is worth $2.50, and this is old, this is someone quoting it. When wrought into horseshoes, it's worth $5. If made into needles, it's worth $175. If into penknife blades, it's worth $1,625. If made into springs for watches, it's worth $125,000. What a trial by fire that bar must undergo to be worth this, from $2.50 to $125,000. But the more it is manipulated, the more it is hammered and passed through the heat. The more it's beaten, the more it's pounded and polished, the greater its value. Despite the fact that the initial lump of ore may be smaller, they don't put just pure gold into the fire. They take a lump of ore and put it in, and it could be something this size. 
They put it into the fire. And despite the fact that they may pull out just a handful of what's left, despite the fact it's so much smaller, the value of what's left is exponentially greater than the mass that was put in. We get in the middle of trials and think, man, I'm just, I'm, I'm wearing away. I'm wait, I can't, I've got nothing left. Let me tell you what, if you endure through the trial and the testing, what comes out of that will be so much greater of value than what went into it. The trial of my faith is a precious gift. The trial of my faith is precious because it makes me more like him. 1 Peter 4.12, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. As though some strange thing happened unto you. I can't figure out why all this stuff is happening to me. Think it not strange. Here's the part that we just don't, I don't have, but rejoice. That's goofy. (laughs) But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. 2 Corinthians 1.7, and our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so shall you also of the consolation. And then in 2 Corinthians 4.8, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Now we read that verse and, and we like to shout because we're not distressed, we're not in despair, we're not forsaken, we're not destroyed. But we forget that they were troubled, they were perplexed, they were persecuted, and they were cast down. And the reason in all of these verses is so that I can become a partaker of Christ's suffering. So that I can demonstrate the dying of the Lord Jesus in my own life. These verses encompass more than just trials and testings. They're written to people in severe persecution. And that's important to remember that this is, this is, uh, they're writing to people in the awfulest of circumstances trying to live for the Lord, but they encompass the apostles' attitude towards all of the things that were coming against him. They understood this fact, that to partake of Christ, understand the trial of my faith is precious because it makes me more like him, that to partake of Christ doesn't just mean that I get to be involved in miracles. Doesn't just mean healings everywhere. It doesn't just mean feeding 5,000. It means hunger. It means wanderings. It means suffering. In fact, if I read scripture as I think I'm supposed to, I can't be like Jesus without trials of faith, which stinks. If I want to be like him, I can't pick and choose which parts of him I want to be like. Wouldn't that be nice? I would pick the Mount of Transfiguration when I'm shining and people want to build temples for me. That would be one. I'd pick the 5,000 with the 12 baskets of leftover and we could have a youth fundraiser. They could all go to Congress with it. I'd pick the resurrection where I'm gardening and Mary comes by and I'm like, hey Mary. Or I walk through walls. <laughs> walk, I mean, that's the stuff we pick, right? But that wasn't Jesus. It wasn't Jesus. He got to those points because of suffering. This is the same with most people. If you look at great people, whether they be spiritual or not, usually 
great people equates with great suffering. We wonder why we don't see miracles much anymore, which I don't necessarily believe is true. But we wonder why we don't see greater things. Is it possible that we don't see them because we're not willing to suffer for them? I don't know. John 16 says, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered. Jesus is trying to encourage the disciples by telling them, Hey, hold on, there's a time coming, you're all going to be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Understand this fact that when he says, I have overcome the world, he means spiritually. That means that sin does not have dominion over you anymore. That he has conquered death, hell, and the grave. That I have a hope of heaven that when I die, that's not the end. That's what he's conquered. We think he's conquered the tribulation. No, he says, in the world, you shall have tribulation. There shall be bad things. There will be suffering. There will be rough times. Physically... It may take its toll on me, but the spiritual battle has been won. They understood two things about the trial of their faith that I believe that has been lost throughout the ages of Christianity. Whoops, flipped the wrong page. First thing is that the apostles knew that we have forgotten is that a trial does not mean dislike or punishment. Sometimes when bad things happen, we begin to think, you know what, maybe bad things have happened. You know what, maybe I've done something wrong. Scripture tells us that we are in a battle, a battle of the spiritual. Ephesians 6 says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. It's important for us to realize that a trial does not mean dislike or punishment, in fact, Possibly, it may mean favor. Let me give you a little example. In the military, if there's a special mission that has to be done, a secret special mission that has to be done, and they either line everybody up and walk down the line, or they're going through their, their files and they're trying to see, well, who's done what, the chances are that they will not pick the novice. The chances are they will not pick the new recruit who's just come out of boot camp. I don't know, maybe they do. But chances are, if there's some secret sensitive mission that has to be accomplished, who do you think they're going to look for? Probably someone who's experienced. Probably someone who's gone through things before. And so they find a candidate who's proven themselves many times before that he can do the job that they're looking for him to do. And they come to the soldier and they tell him he's been chosen to embark upon another sensitive, secret, but of course dangerous mission. Most likely the soldier may feel anxious, they may feel fear, but most likely they'll feel pride that out of all the soldiers they've been picked for this particular mission. I don't know, maybe they wouldn't, but I would. That of every, everybody there... I've been picked to go on this mission, which, if it fails, could mean death. It could mean the worst. And yet they feel a sense of pride about it. Now put that in the context of my trial of my faith. 
as a soldier in the army of God? First of all, it's not punishment or dislike. Perhaps the reason that I'm going through a trial is because God trusts me and God likes me. Perhaps because I've proven myself before, there's trust placed in me again. We think if we've come through something, then we should be done. Well, I've been tried. I've been tested. I'm done. Pick somebody else. Perhaps in this battle, perhaps in this uh, war, he's picking me because I have proven myself before. And instead of thinking that it's not fair, perhaps I need to think of it different. That I was picked because I've proven myself. What we may not understand is that we may be chosen by God again just because of the fact that we've already proven ourselves before. But we don't see it as an honor. We see it as more punishment and not fair. Why is God doing this to me? Really, we begin to go down the list that Job's friends did. Well, I must be in this trial because there's sin in my life or I'm being punished or God must not like me. When really, it may just be God continuing to shake me for something even greater. It's important for us to understand that if I want to be like Christ, if I want to see something magnificent happen in my life, in a church, in a city, that I can't do it without trials and sufferings. The trial of my faith is something precious. It gives me something to stand upon. So to finish up, how do I make it through these trials? How do I make it through again and again? Something begins to happen, how do I make it through? glad you asked because you see for this third precious gift to be received the trial of my faith he gave me two other gifts he gave me his blood and he gave me his promises how do I make it through a trial it seems like it never ends it seems like this is just continual you know what I do I reach for the other two gifts and say you know what his blood is enough to cover His blood can bring me through. And you know what? His word and his promises say this. And so I'm going to grab a hold of these other two gifts. And they're going to allow me to make it through the trial of my faith. And when I step on the other side of it, I've had two gifts. But now all of a sudden when I step through the trial of my faith and I come out the other side, now I have three gifts. Now I can stand on the blood. Now I can stand on his promises. And now I can stand on my faith. This provided a base for me in my life because it's the evidence that I'm not just saying stuff. I don't just walk in church and lift my hands, however. No, I do it as, because there's evidence in my life. If I want there to be evidence, something strong, something sure, I've got to realize that the trial of my faith is precious. As we stand this morning. It's a lot harder to grasp a hold of the trial of my faith being precious and we don't have time to look at everything about faith or suffering and trials because there's a lot of it in scripture but it's amazing to me as I read how the apostles reacted to tough times how different it is from my reaction how they leave being beaten and told don't ever preach or speak again and they leave rejoicing (laughs) how they leave situations and here's the only reason they did it's because it's not because God's sadistic It's not because they're like, man, just pour it on me. We love bad stuff. It's not because they had warped mindsets, but they knew that if there was suffering and trials, something was being produced. Even though they didn't know exactly what it was, 
they knew that something was being produced. You know what? I want to have that faith in my life to know that even in the tough times, God's doing something within me. Let's join together in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come before you.